Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly. I'm Sean Donnan, the FT's World News Editor. This month, we are looking at the issue of youth unemployment in a series that we've dubbed Left Behind. We are taking a look at unemployed youth around the world. On World Weekly this week, we're going to look at two countries that we haven't actually tackled as part of the series, but that we've had very interesting pieces on. David Pilling, our Asia editor, wrote about what he called the Ice Age facing 20-somethings and 30-somethings in Japan. And Leslie Hook in Beijing is going to join us on the line to talk about the post-1990 generation in China. David, let's start with you. What does economic reality look like for a 20-something Japanese man or woman these days? Well, the problem for a 20-year-old Japanese uh, man or woman is that the economy hasn't been growing, at least in nominal terms, for 10, 20 years. I mean, what happened was uh, when the bubble burst in 1990, the government and corporations were very slow to realize what had happened because the economy had been growing more or less continuously for 40, 50 years since the war. And then suddenly it sort of stopped and people really thought that it was going to go back to normal. Now, it was the corporations who began to realize first that actually things were not going to get back to normal and that Japan was now in a new phase. So what they did was they stopped hiring new workers. I mean, it wasn't as abrupt as I'm making it out, but basically they kept their contract with old workers who, remember, in Japan had this contract with especially the big companies. I'm talking here about the salary man, and, and it was generally a salary man. So they would come out of university and they would dedicate their lives to a company. And in return, the company would provide certain guarantees. Their salary would continually rise, which was, of course, easy uh, when the economy was growing. And they basically didn't fire them. Now, there was some restructuring and companies did, in fact, fire some people. But generally, their preferred method of dealing with a slower growing economy was not to take on new graduates. And because of the way the Japanese recruitment system works, those people who missed out on getting a good job straight out of university could never really get back on the escalator. So it began to create a kind of bifurcated labor model where you had more and more people who were in temporary work, in contract work, part-time, tended to be low-wage work without too much security, without pensions, without healthcare benefits. Now, that all sounds very bleak. And in many ways, it is bleak because the implicit social contract that Japan had had with all generations now didn't apply to younger generations or at least not to an increasingly large proportion. And we're probably talking about a third of, of youth are in the position that I've just talked about. It's not all bad, however. You talk to people now, and I, I talk to 
somebody in, a, in an article I just wrote for the FT who said, well, we look back at our parents, but, you know, they were kind of wage slaves. They had to do all these ridiculous hours of overtime. They never saw their families. Our mothers were basically maids. That's a quote. Mm. Um, and we look back at that time and we think we don't really want that. So what are they doing differently then? Well, uh, they're bouncing around between different jobs. They're uh, perhaps uh, thinking about work in a different way. I mean, the company for the salaryman was almost more important than the family. I mean, you, you have to be careful because people do talk about Japan in very cliched terms. But there's some, some truth to that. The company was kind of everything because of this relationship that they had where the salaryman devoted kind of insane hours uh, and insane amounts of effort to the company, but in return, the company looked after them. So younger people don't have that relationship with the company, or at least those who are locked out of this world. So they act more like people in European or, or in the American economy. They're not quite so loyal to the company they work for. They might think about uh, taking a break, going abroad for a bit, they might think about setting up their own business, becoming a bit more entrepreneurial, slobbing around. There is a darker side of this. There are some people who just sort of stay in their room and play on the internet all day. They're the so-called hikikomori who, who kind of never leave the house. But again, one shouldn't exaggerate. Uh, there probably aren't so many of those people. But this very kind of ordered, definite escalator of life has kind of broken down, and that's forcing people to think and behave in different ways. And there are good sides to that, and there are very bad sides to that as well. In your piece that you wrote for FT Weekend, you spend a lot of time talking to these fascinating characters who are off doing more creative things, helping entrepreneurs, helping youth, uh, doing social work. But you also have uh, this character who studied law at uh, Tokyo University, Yuri Takeuchi, now works for Mitsubishi, and she has a slightly different perspective on the young. You get a sense from her that she almost believes that some of this new... Uh, uh, behavior that we're seeing uh, from the 20-something is slightly self-indulgent, almost narcissistic. Well, I think those people who have been abroad a lot, they look at the hunger that they see in places like China. If you go to China these days, you arrive in Beijing, and young people in their 20s will kind of pounce on you almost, suck all the knowledge out of you, and then move on to the next person. And the kind of desire to learn, to improve, to go somewhere is just palpable. Um, in China. And you see this around many of the kind of emerging markets in Asia. Japan is kind of a little bit lazy. You know, they've made it, they're wealthy, they have fantastic restaurants, and they can go out to jazz clubs. They can live at home with their parents and not do very much. Might not, they might not earn much money, but, you know, life's not too bad. Of course, there are some poorer Japanese, but generally, it's a very kind of comfortable existence. And uh, the older Japanese generation sort of say that the mojo has gone out of the younger generations. And yes, I think some people think, well, look, if Japan carries on like this, China is going to come zooming by. Uh, they're already looking at Korea, for example, and you see this in the corporate world where a company like Samsung is kind of eating the lunch of the Sonys and Panasonics of this world. Which brings us to China and that hunger that you're talking about. Leslie, you wrote uh, this fascinating piece for us about the post-1990 generation, which seems to be newly politically active. And I just wonder if you can explain a little bit more what this generation is and what they're up to. 
Well, in China, for whatever reason, the, the terminology for generations tends to be segregated by decades. So we have the post-80 generation who were born during the 1980s and had a reputation for being middle class, perhaps materialistic. Um, their detractors believe they were apathetic. People who were born during the 80s graduated from university uh, you know, about 12 years ago and rode the wave of China's very rapid growth. Uh, many of them became very successful and were able to achieve the house, the car, uh, and, and, and reach these milestones of achievement that in Chinese society are considered the key markers for having uh, made it in life. And for the post-90 generation, they're still very young. The oldest post-90 kid is just 22 this year. And they are just now coming out of the shadows, and they're very highly educated. Uh, they're mostly only children, and there's more of them going to university than ever before. But there's also a sense that the opportunities that face them, whilst there still are opportunities, there are less exciting opportunities or even fewer opportunities. Chinese growth is slowing, and social mobility has also really changed. You know, in the 80s, an entrepreneur starting out in realist could be one of China's richest men today. But if you're starting out in business today, it's, it's much harder to become one of China's richest people two decades from now. So there's a sense that there's much less social mobility and that the opportunities while there are slightly smaller. And one other difference with the post-80 generation is there are even more of them online. And they're not just getting online to chat, but they also tend to be very savvy at evading censorship control to uh, access sites that are blocked inside China, like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. And while a lot of people spend time online, you know, playing video games or shopping or whatever, this young generation does seem to be quite politically active as well. So how was that manifested in Shifang? Well, the catalyst for the protest in Shifang was the groundbreaking ceremony for a new metals refinery. This was a $1.6 billion copper refining facility. And the uh, local residents say they didn't know anything about it. Um, before ground was broken. Shifang is a town that was badly damaged in the Sichuan earthquake and has had a highly polluting phosphate refinery for several years. And so there was already a sense of they had a few uh, chemicals plants already. They did not want this one. And the high school students and college students really jumped on this cause and demonstrators say were really leading the charge and uh, helping organize the demonstrations and also gathering support. University students actually came from outside Shifang and traveled there from nearby towns to join in the protests. You can see some of the uh, signs of the rallies show, you know, university students from nearby universities with their university name on their banners opposing the plant. And people that spoke to in Shifang also say that they that the high school students there and university students are always online, which is very typical of this generation. And also, it's easy for them to evade the Internet control and to find out what's really going on out there. The other thing that's interesting about Shifang is that it was really an, an environmental protest. The post-90 generation has kind of been stuck with some of the more negative sides of China's economic uh, miracle, particularly acutely aware of the immense environmental damage that's been inflicted. And they've really seen the environment deteriorate over their 
lifetimes, whether it's seeing their rivers turn black or seeing the air pollution get a lot worse. Uh, it's just been a very visible change that has accompanied these kids as they've been growing up. And so environmental causes tend to be close to their hearts. How has this all been greeted by the Communist Party? I guess there's some degree of speculation here, but uh, in terms of what the party leaders are thinking, but Chinese state-run media has expressed intense concern over uh, having high school students involved in protests. Uh, one newspaper, the Global Times, ran an editorial saying, look what happened the last time high school students got involved in politics. That was the Cultural Revolution, and we all know how the Cultural Revolution turned out. And so there was a real note of consternation, perhaps even fear, uh, about these young, impassioned, emotional, volatile young age groups becoming active in politics. David, you wrote uh, this week in a column that the China we see today is a very different, a much freer China than the one we saw 20, 30 years ago. When you look up from Hong Kong and you think about things like the post-1990 generation, what does that mean for the development of China? Well, I think it is very interesting. Years ago, there was this theory, wasn't there, that as China got richer, or as any country got richer, but of course, we're all very interested in China. As China got richer, then people would begin to think about things other than getting wealthier, those kind of things that Leslie was talking about, that they might turn their attention to politics, to representation, to the environment, to broader issues. We sort of went off that idea a few years ago, began to talk about the Beijing consensus, that uh, as long as Beijing and the Communist Party could deliver 10% growth and everyone would be happy. Um, I kind of think we should have stuck with our original theory. You know, as people get wealthier and as they forget about really being dirt poor as they move to the cities, as they are exposed to ideas, to stories on the internet, to other people, they do begin to think about other things. We saw this with this high-speed rail crash in Wenzhou, where people openly compared kind of the fast economic growth with other things that were lacking, um, safety, corruption, which was seen to be possibly at the heart of building the railway too fast and therefore endangering the lives of people. So I think um, what we're seeing is what, in a funny sort of sense, we expected to see 10 or 15 years ago, which is that as China becomes wealthier, people do begin to turn their attention to issues beyond merely GDP. And is there a lesson from this ice age that you were writing about in Japan for the post-1990 generation in China? I don't know there's a lesson for the post-1990 generation, but I think there are a few things that you can say if you look at Japan and, uh, and China. I mean, first of all, we shouldn't get carried away. I've heard it said a few times that, you know, China is looking at Japan and to see where it went wrong. Japan's become a disaster. It hasn't grown for 20 years. And China is desperately trying to find out what went wrong in Japan so it doesn't make the same mistake. I kind of think that's crazy. I mean, if China does as well as Japan has done, i.e. to get to about 80 or 90 percent of U.S. GDP per capita, then it will have done pretty well. It will be the biggest country in the world by a mile. In fact, China only has to get as rich as Portugal to be bigger than Europe and America combined. So um, we shouldn't be obsessed as Japan as failure, problems though it has. Um, the second thing I think is that um, as China ages, and of course it will age, 
partly because of the one-child policy, it should look at Japan and decide that it needs to adapt more quickly. And one of the things that we can see from the Ice Age generation is that companies have stuck with this old method of hiring people en masse from university or school. If you miss the boat, you're done for. But that just doesn't chime with the new Japan with the new realities. And so these companies really ought to have changed the way they do business. People ought to be moving around companies more freely and companies themselves should be adapting their culture. And they've done that more slowly than one might have wished. And China should do better. The third thing I think is uh, they should look at demography as destiny. Now, demography isn't entirely destiny. There are things you can do about it. But aging countries don't grow so fast. So uh, I think China needs to get rich before it gets old. David Pilling in Hong Kong, thank you very much. And that's it for this week. My thanks to David Pilling in Hong Kong and Leslie Hook in Beijing. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.